Good morning. It's good to be here with you. Uh, as I preach this morning, I'd ask that you would pray for me. Uh, like some of you, uh, tis the season to not feel great. So, having a bit of a sinus infection this morning, uh, my desire is to preach God's Word to you. I bring you greetings from Christ Community, or Christ Church Chicago. This is Christ Community Church. That'd be weird if I was bringing you greetings from your own church. You already greeted one another, so you already did that. Uh, but from Christ Church Chicago, church where I am a member, and uh, I'm happy to be here this morning, if for no other reason than you all are indoors, and they are still outdoors, waiting to go into a building that is being renovated slightly slower than is comfortable this time of year. Uh, and it's also just nice to be back with you, uh, you need to know that the students of the Chicago Course on Preaching, who I have the benefit of serving and training, uh, have been praying for you all, along with me. Uh, just a few weeks ago, I helped install a pastor in a church that I had been serving on a regular basis. Uh, because they didn't have a pastor for years. And it was uh, a great joy to hand that church off and not have to go there anymore, which allows me to come here more often uh, if I get invited back. So, we'll see. This morning we'll be in Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. Um, I wonder if you ever feel strange at Christmas time. I know I do. It's not just because of the rampant commercialism, which kind of makes you feel weird, or the fact that you have to oftentimes spend time with extended family, and that's kind of weird. Or because there's just too many sweet things to eat, which I personally can't stand at all. Maybe you're a big fan. The main reason I feel strange at Christmas actually came up in the song we just sang. The main reason I feel strange at Christmas is because I've read the story before. I mean past the opening chapters of the Gospels. I, I know where all of this is headed just in case you don't know where it's headed, or in case you haven't embraced the strangeness of Christmas, let me fill you in very briefly. That baby, Jesus, that you see in the manger, He won't stay there. He will grow up. And uh, at the end of the story, they kill Him. He's a baby born to die. Yes, and resurrect from the dead and be victorious over all the powers of sin and death. We celebrate it in just a few months. We call it Easter. A time where we remember His victory over everything. For some reason, celebrating it by pretending that 
rabbits lay chocolate eggs or something. I don't know what all that's about, honestly. But it's at this time of year that we remember the coming of Jesus. And, and if we know how it ends with his death, we go, well, I mean, I know this is good news, but, but, but why is this good news? What difference should the coming of Jesus make in your life and in my life? In order to answer those questions, I've been assigned a rather interesting text. I don't know who assigned me this text. I'd like to thank them publicly and anonymously, whoever you are that assigned me this text. This is the kind of text that I would pick to preach at my church during Advent when I was pastoring. But I want to tell you right now that I would never pick this text to pick on purpose as a guest preacher. Hopefully you're intrigued. All of a sudden you're like, what does the Bible possibly have to say? The reason why is, and I think this is a, a wonderful Advent text. Now, to be honest, I think every text in the Bible is a wonderful Advent text. But this one is wonderful because it says something very important about the coming of Jesus that we tend to ignore. Or at least tend to just push off at this time of year. My assignment is to preach chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. And that's where we're going to end up. But to understand what exactly is going on there, I'm actually going to read from verse 1 all the way through, a little ways past, verse 22. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 22. This is what God's Word says. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being the governor of Judah, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eruthia, and Thessonius, and Lysonius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and the, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has Food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, 
And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. I've been asked to talk on the title, The Coming Kingdom Brings Good News. And I do think that that's what this passage is talking about. I think the question is, what is the good news that the coming kingdom brings? In this rather sobering passage, I think that this is what we learn. It's what I'll be arguing toward this morning. I want to convince you of this thing above all else. That the coming of the righteous Lord compels righteous living. That's what this is all about right here. I want to make that point clear by asking and answering two questions in this text. Who is the righteous Lord? Number one. Who is the righteous Lord? And number two, why does His coming compel righteous living? We're going to answer those questions by running through this text twice. Answering the question the first time, who is the righteous Lord? And then saying, okay, now that we know who He is, why does His coming compel our righteous living? But whatever the answers are to those questions, I want to be clear, it is absolutely good news that the coming of the righteous Lord compels righteous living. Well, who exactly is this righteous Lord character? Interestingly, it's not the main character of this text. The main character of this text is John the Baptist. What is his message? We see it in verse 3. He went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That sounds rather serious. Why, John, so serious? Well, in order to explain why John was doing what he was doing, Luke, the author of this gospel, goes ahead and quotes in verses 4 through 6 the book of Isaiah. He's going to quote Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, to explain why John is doing what he's doing. And the reason he is so serious... This couldn't be more shocking. The reason he's so serious is because, according to Luke, whoever is about to come is, according to verse 3, the Lord, and verse 6, God Himself. The Lord God is on His way. So make, every, uh, make His path straight. Get ready. God is coming to town. 
people of John's day called this one who was to come, the Christ, the anointed one, the holy king, the righteous Lord sent from God. This was going to be quite the arrival. Can you imagine if an announcement like that were given to us here? If, for example, I were here to say this morning, God's coming. Get ready. Now that's not exactly a hypothetical, because that's exactly what I am doing this morning. In other words, the work of John the Baptist here is very similar to what I'm doing this morning, not because I'm special, but in fact, anybody who's ever preached the book of Luke, chapter 3, should be doing exactly the same thing. God's on his way. Get ready. The people think John might be this Christ guy. We said that in verse 15. They were already waiting for him. But John is really clear in verse 16. He says, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not the guy. I'm, I'm just getting the way ready for that guy. That guy is going to be somebody special. He's bringing the Holy Spirit and, and fire, a purifying thing. In other words, the righteous Lord is coming. I'm not him. Man, this is going to be something when he comes. So who is the righteous king? Well, thankfully, we don't have to guess. If we read right past the section that I was assigned, the closing verses of that section in 21 and 22, I'll read them again. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. It's always nice when God himself gives you the answers to the questions. Who, who's this Lord figure who's going to come? The, the Christ, the anointed righteous Lord sent from God to set everything right. Who is he? God peels back the heavens and goes, ah, it's Jesus. It's my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the righteous Lord. Luke is telling his readers, including you and I, that the righteous Lord is Jesus Christ. He is come. He's a king. He brings his kingdom with him. As you see the baby laying in the manger, remember this, that as paradoxical, as ironic, as strange as it might seem, that little baby is not only the coming King of God, the righteous Lord, but He comes bringing a kingdom. There's no king without a kingdom. We now know who the righteous Lord is quite a momentous event. But the question is, why does His coming compel righteous living? 
I'm sure you already knew the answer to the first question the first time around before we even started. We dismissed some of the children. The children could have answered the question, who is the righteous Lord? Everybody like, bro, I've been in Sunday school my whole life. Jesus, I'm six years old, I know the answer to that question. Why does it compel righteous living? No, to be clear, it, it does compel righteous living. We get that right at the very beginning. We start the story over again. Remember that when John the Baptist comes, he has a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's because the Lord is coming. He's like, everybody get ready. But it's much more than just getting in the Jordan with John for a swim. Notice what he says in verse 7. This is not exactly what you say when you have crowds of baptism. Now, I know that next week you have a baptism, and that's awesome. Imagine, verse 7, the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. Imagine if there wasn't one. Imagine if people were just streaming in the door. As encouraging it would be to have one, which is great. Imagine just a rush of people coming to get baptized. I don't know if you would respond the same way John does. John is not a very good evangelist. How about now? Oh, here we go. We're back on. So as I was saying the other day, no, I'm just kidding. John the Baptist, at the water, people coming down, sees the crowds. What would you say? I know what I would say. Come on in. The water's fine. Plenty of room. Don't push. You've got the teenagers over there like trying to drown each other in the river. Just wait your turn. Nope. He goes, you brood of vipers. And maybe you're thinking like, maybe it's different in the Greek or something. I don't know. I hear somebody said like it's written in Greek. No, it's a perfectly good translation. You brood of vipers. What? Why is this the response? Well, we get a clue if you just keep reading. Usually, by the way, just free tip on Bible reading. If you get confused, just keep reading. That's all you got to do. And if you get still confused, just read it again. Why, you brood of vipers? Well, as he says here, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise these stones to raise up children for Abraham. In other words, it appears that the people were relying on their tradition. Thinking like, oh yeah, it's time to get baptized. Okay, I guess this is what we do as Jews. Okay, here we go. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, John's like eating locusts and stuff, dipped in honey. He's got this crazy kind of outfit on. 
He's clearly passionate about whatever he's passionate about. There's baptism for repentance. I got nothing to do. Let's go down to the river. Why? I don't know. It's just what we do. Here we go. Everybody else is going. And John goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Before you get in here, you brood of vipers, don't think that just getting in here is going to do something. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Your religious tradition is fine, but it's not everything. It's like saying this. I'll go through the motions at church. I know none of you have ever said this. I'll go through the motions at church, but I don't really have to believe this way or live this way, right? I mean, I'm part of Christ's community church playing field. I'm fine. I'm in the Christian Reformed Church. I'm fine. I'm getting in. John doesn't say, don't, don't get in the water. Don't participate in the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He wouldn't say today, don't, don't be a member of this church. Don't come to church. Don't, don't go to the functions. He wouldn't say that. He would say, don't think that just showing up is enough. Going through the motions is enough. It should be part of a life bearing fruit of repentance. John pulls no punches. God doesn't need you. He can make these stones into sons. Same thing goes with us. God doesn't need us. He, he uses a helpful agricultural analogy they do so often in the New Testament. It's, it's helpful, but it's it's painful. Right there in verse 9. I don't know if you've ever grown a fruit tree. But I don't think you have to be a wizard to know that you know what fruit trees are supposed to produce? Nailed it. Fruit. Verse 9, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's just what you do with trees that don't produce good fruit. They're good for firewood. The metaphor is striking. The axe is right there at the root of the trees. It's deadly serious. Why is all this the case? Why so serious, John? That's back to point one. It's because the righteous Lord coming. He's here. And His coming compels righteous living. That's clear in the response to John's message. I don't, I don't know if you caught it, but it's very interesting the way that Luke writes it. John says this, brood of vipers, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't say that you're Abraham's kids. God could make sons out of these rocks. Gets done with that wonderfully comforting Advent sermon. And shockingly, in verses 10 to 14, we get this three times. What shall we do? It's on the part of the crowds. 
After the crowds get done asking, then the tax collectors ask. After the tax collectors are done, then the soldiers ask. All of them, all different kinds of people from society, ask the same question, what shall we do? And to boil down John's answer, I could do it very simply. While they're particular for each group, it could all be summed up this way. Live righteously. Live justly. Same word. Just in case we didn't get it or think that it wasn't a thing to take seriously, Luke goes out of his way to double down on the idea in the passage we're considering this Advent. People are in expectation. Verse 15. John, are, are, you, are you the Christ? I mean, you're deadly serious. So, so are you the one that we've been waiting for? And John's like, oh no. No, this is nothing compared to what's coming. He's definitely making the path straight, like in Isaiah 40. But he's just getting the way ready for the righteous Lord. And we get verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Question number one, what the heck is a winnowing fork? Imagine a really big pitchfork. Before the day and age of lots of advanced agricultural machinery, they just have these big forks and they'd take the wheat that had been harvested People were geniuses, and they just throw it up in the air. Why would you throw it up in the air? Because you're letting the air do the work for you. Just toss it up in the air, chaff blows away, wheat falls down. Piece of cake. Gather the wheat, wheat's good. Gather the chaff, burn the chaff. That's all the chaff is good for. According to John, this is what the righteous Lord is coming to do. Separate everything out. Wheat, chaff. The wheat is kept, the chaff is burned, just like the fruitless trees. What does all of this mean? Well, it means that whoever this righteous Lord is, He's coming to set the world to rights. He's coming to fix things. He's coming to make it what it ought to be. How does that strike you? Here's how it should strike you. It's the last verse that we've been asked to consider this Advent season. It's in verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Wait a second. Jeremy, are you telling me that the good news of this passage is that the righteous Lord, Jesus Christ, comes to set the world right. Yes. According to Luke in this passage, that is the good news. And in closing, I'd just like to say that this is good news in three very simple 
distinct ways. First of all, it's very hard good news. The coming of Christmas is so strange because it's such a climactic moment in time. It is good news, but it is sobering news. It is a king who is coming with absolute authority who comes to the world and goes, I am king. There's no question about that. Follow me and be blessed or be burnt. It's up to you. One of the things that you and I have to remember at Christmas time that should give us pause is that with the coming of Jesus comes the coming of an era in which we don't get to pick and choose what we do with Jesus. We either believe Him or reject Him. It is hard news. You are either wheat or you are chaff. You are for either gathering into Jesus' barn or be burned with unquenchable fire. There are only two kinds of people in the world. What kind of person are you? Do you believe Jesus is the coming righteous King? So it's hard good news. But it's not just hard good news. It's necessary good news. As hard as it is to hear this about Jesus, the righteous Lord, the coming Judge, don't you think that a change needs to come? I don't care who you are or how much you do believe or don't believe in the God that Christianity preaches from the Bible. I guarantee you that you believe that a change needs to come. We might disagree on what the change needs to be or why it needs to come, but only delusional people walk around every day going, this is as good as it gets. Friends, we live in an incredibly messed up world. And by the way, it's always been messed up. Just in case you ever thought that today is where everything falls apart, just go back and read again the word to the tax collectors and the word to the soldiers. Because in John telling them what to not do, we see what they're doing. What are they doing? Just, just, I'll just read it very briefly. Do not collect more than is authorized. Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations. Man, that sounds like the south side of Chicago. And this was 2,000 years ago, halfway around the world. Friends, the world's always been a messed up place. It needs to be set right. And so while it is hard good news, it is necessary good news, I think it's ultimately hopeful good news. Because while, yes, the chaff will be burned, friends, the wheat will be gathered in to God's own storehouse forever. Know this, that in the coming of the righteous Lord who compels our righteous living, as a response to Him coming, we go, yes, we desire to be on team Jesus. I desire to live in light of the King who has come and I serve Him as King I know that in seeing him as a baby, he comes and secures his kingdom by dying for me, rising from the dead, victorious over everything, seated in the heavenly places, coming again, coming again. We even heard this morning, in the first coming of Jesus, everybody was weirded out. In the second one, it's also going to be strange. But friends, in the coming of Jesus, we see the coming of Jesus again. And thus, 
the coming of the righteous Lord the first time, and the coming of the righteous Lord again compels our righteous living because we know that when He comes and separates the wheat from the chaff, the wheat will be gathered into Him forever. So yes, it is hard. Yes, it is necessary. But it is also hopeful. Does the good news of the coming kingdom have transforming power in your life? I pray it does, friend. The coming of the righteous king compels our righteous living. It is good news this Christmas season. Let's pray. Lord, would You help us to believe this good news? To be the kinds of people that You have called us to be. Ones who live not only with expectation of Jesus' coming, but with the firm confidence that He came and with the expectation that He is coming again. Help us to live righteous lives. In Jesus' name, Amen.